I'm so proud of these guys. When I get up here, Chris has this, this stand like this. I'm like, I'm not that tall, man. You've got to lower that for me. I'm way down here. Um, so good to see you guys. Uh, before I begin, I want to just ask you to keep a family in your prayers, um, a really important family to me and to this ministry. Um, many of you may already know, but uh, a, a really one of my favorite people in this church uh, passed away about a week ago, um, Jeff Harford, who used to sit in here and, and lead discussions with many of the previous classes we've had come through here. Um, Hunter Harford was uh, a student here several years ago. Some of you guys may have had him as a captain, I don't know, in Impact at some point, but he, um, he was legendary as far as Impact captains go. And uh, anyway, his dad passed away a little over a week ago now, and the funeral was yesterday, and just what a man, what an example. And so just be praying for the Harford family as they kind of walk through some really tough days ahead. Um, it's really hard for Hunter because he graduates from college in about a week. And so you can imagine just the emotions that are flooding through his mind um, as he approaches that day. So be praying for them. So here we are uh, at the end of Philippians, almost at the end of Philippians. We have a few more weeks left. And I've been gone for a couple of Sundays, and I had barely looked at this passage until um, this past Monday. And when I opened up the passage, I just thought, wow, this is very appropriate um, for the moment. And uh, so I want to just tell you how things look on most Sundays. So most Sundays during the week, I spend about eight to ten hours um, reading, studying, praying, writing. And then on Sunday morning, I'll stand in the stage in front of you, and I'll share with you what I think God wants me to share. That's how it normally goes. And preaching, I've begun to notice is kind of a weird deal because um, we prep during the week and we get up here and we tell you how you should live, how you should think, how you should be. And if we're not careful, those of us that teach a lot on stages like this, uh, you can start to think of us as some kind of spiritual giant, which we are not. Let me assure you of that. Some kind of spiritual giant who has it all together. And we start to develop what I call the stage persona. So what is the stage persona? How many of you all are in theater? Raise your hand. There's a few of you. I saw a couple of you guys in performances last month. And you know in theater, there's what happens on stage and what happens backstage. What happens on stage is an act. What happens backstage is the real you, right? And for those of us that teach, that are pastors, we can um, assume this stage persona, and we can never share struggles and never get transparent and never talk about our own sin, and it can be this act on a stage. And I have to tell you, after reading this, the text this week, I cannot do that today, not with this passage. I can't hide from this passage. This passage is so personally convicting to me. And I hope it is for you this morning. I've struggled. I've shared with you before how um, throughout my life, in the ups and downs of life, I've struggled with uh, anxiety and worry and certain kinds of fears. And some, if I were to explain it, you'd say, that's completely foolish. Why do you think about stuff like that? And I would say, you're right, but they're there. Or 
some might be well-founded, but they're just there. And it's been this kind of lifelong battle. And one of the temptations with these kinds of things is to never talk about it and never get open about it because people are going to think you're stupid or they're going to think you're weak. And I just want us to be honest this morning. Can we just talk about our junk today? Can we, just, can we do that? Permission to do that today? And uh, because it's not just me who struggles with this. I know for a fact it's not just me that struggles with this, this kind of stuff. It's not just me who struggles with the stage persona. I think we all do it. Every Sunday, many of you come in here. Um, some of you guys get up at whatever time on Sunday morning and you get your, your stuff together, whatever that looks like for you. Some of you guys do a good job of that. Some of you guys not so much. And you come in here, and you may have a Bible you're carrying under your arm, and you, you've got your church persona. It's the stage persona. You come in, and it's, everything just stays superficial. Everything stays surface, and you never really get to the heart of the matter and, and really open up about really where you're at. That never really happens. And so you have the stage persona that's presented in front of everybody, but then inside you're just a complete mess. And I think many of you can relate to this idea. And if that's you, then I'm talking to you today. I'm talking to all of us today in that situation. Today's message is how to deal with anxiety and worry. And I believe that many of you are struggling with this. And I think for some of you, it is debilitating. You don't talk about it. You don't share it. But it's there. And it's just this ever-present hum that's in the background of your life, and you can't get rid of it. And for many of us, it can be completely debilitating. Some of you are aware of it. Some of you are not as aware of it. And for those that are not as aware of it, it's still there. You maybe don't admit it, but it just comes out in other kinds of emotions, It comes out in frustration. It comes out in anger. It comes out in other ways. And you might ask yourself, why am I acting this way? Why am I being this way? And we could really trace it back to some of these things we're going to talk about today, where behind all that, there is some anxiety and some fear and some real worry that you're not letting God deal with. And so we're going to get into this uh, this morning. So, what is anxiety? One famous author, he defines it this way. He says, anxiety seems to be an intense desire for something accompanied by a fear of the consequences of not receiving it. Anxiety is caused by this intense desire that you and I have for something, whatever that is. And then there's the fear of I might not get what my intense desires long for. So you can fill in the blank on that. It could be certain relationships. It could be certain jobs. It could be certain academic achievement, certain college acceptance. It can be certain friendships, certain groups of people. And all this is this intense desire towards something. And then what comes with that is this fear of not actually getting it. So you're the kind of person that you imagine the future as a worst-case scenario, and then you freak out about it. And this could be about any kinds of, all kinds of things. 
I want to differentiate, though. There is a good kind of anxiety that we will not talk much about today. Just to differentiate it for a minute, there is a good kind of anxiety. In one of Paul's letters to churches, he writes about his anxiety that he has for all the churches. And I would classify that more as a burden. It's just, it's a good burden. Paul is genuinely concerned, worried, anxious for some people in the church. And it's a good burden. It's a good and godly burden. And so I would call that, that's a good anxiety. Like, like some of your parents, they're, they're worried about you. And they have good reason to be. And they're concerned about your spiritual walk with God. And they have good reason. That's a good anxiety. Now, they can't let it become a bad, a twisted anxiety, but that's, that's a good burden for them to have. So we are not talking about good anxiety. We're talking about bad anxiety as we go through the passage this morning. I've done some reading on this in the last couple of years, and I've seen um, this is not just Christians writing this kind of stuff. These are unbelievers writing these kinds of studies. But studies will show that people in your demographic today are more anxious than ever before, like in teenage history. And it's not just that they're, it's not just knee-jerk reactions or just their conjecture, but it actually is, is shown in research that people at your stage of life are facing academic pressures like never before, social pressures, and we've talked about this many times on the stage, but just living our life so publicly through social media creates this 24-7 pressure that you've got to have it all together, and you've got to compare yourself to everybody all the time. It's not just for that half hour at lunchtime. It is 24-7. You're aware of where you fit in the social strata. And so because of that, it creates just unseen anxiety in, in youth, and there is a spike in, in depression and a spike in all kinds of things in the demographic that you're sitting in right now because of some of these things. So I know many of you struggle with these things. And I know that I don't have to look at some study to tell you that this is a struggle because you're, you're experiencing it right now. You've experienced it. So I want us all to be honest today, but before I begin, I want you to do something. Each one of you have, you have cards at your tables and some pens, and I want you to do something for the next uh, minute. I'm going to give you a minute. I'm going to pray before we start, though, on this, because I want you to just to be honest um, with God as you write this down. But I want you to answer this one question on this card. It's between you and God. You're not going to turn this in. No one else is going to see it unless you show it to somebody, but I want you to answer this question. What is causing me anxiety and worry right now, right this minute? In order for this to have maximum impact, we got to get specific and name it. And before we do this, I want to actually pray for you, for you to be honest about where, this, where you're at with this. Let's pray. God, I just uh, put before you everybody in this room as we talk about this topic, I pray that they can drown out 
their thoughts, drown out their anxiety about anxiety, drown out their fear about fear. And I pray that they would be able to be honest with you. We know that whenever we struggle with things, we have to be able to name them. We can't just leave it generic. We have to name them. And I pray, God, this morning they would cut out distractions and be able to start there at least and name, call it what it is, and name um, the places in their lives that are causing them the greatest amount of anxiety and worry this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen. I'm going to give you guys a minute just to be silent and to write. Man, I love awkward silence. You guys can keep writing as we go on this morning, but you can keep on adding to that list if you need to um, as God leads you to do so. So every message I preach on this stage, I always, you guys don't know this, but when I spend those several hours in the week preparing, I actually, I'm, I'm preaching the message to myself first, and then I get on the stage and I actually present it to you. And this is one of those messages where, um, where I'm on the stage, but I'm also in the audience, right along with you. In fact, if I say something really good that I like, I may come down there, sit in a chair, and write it down, and then get back up on the stage and keep preaching, okay? So just be prepared for that, uh, because I am in the audience with you this morning. So we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 4. Turn there in your Bibles. Philippians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 1. And it'll take us some time to get to the worry-anxiety thing. We're going to get there, but there's some introduction stuff here first. So Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 to 9. Verse 1 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. We talked about this a few weeks ago, how much affection Paul has for the Philippians. And we've seen it in previous passages in the book, he says that he loves them and that he longs for them. And he has this ache in his heart for these people. And I think I said a couple weeks ago how, how rare that is, I think, in the church. How rare it is that we let each other affect each other enough to where when someone's gone like that, you have this, this ache and this longing just to be with them as a friend. And we see this in, in the letters here that Paul writes. He calls them his joy and his crown. And what does that, what's he mean when he, say, when he says that, when he uses those kinds of words? Even though he's in prison, Paul takes joy knowing that they're growing spiritually. Even though he's in a really tough physical circumstance, Paul takes joy knowing these people are growing in Christ. And so he calls them his joy and his crown. He used this image from Greek athletic events. In the Greek world, the winner would get a crown. And he sees their spiritual success as, as his own crowning achievement. And the question is, do we see the spiritual success of other people in this way? So many of you know, we, we, t- we talk about um, Wednesday night groups and Sunday night growth groups and how some upperclassmen are pouring into the lives of underclassmen in our ministry here. And 
the question I want to ask is, do, how do you measure, how are you going to measure success while you're in high school? Is it going to be your achievement? Is it going to be um, how you achieve or how, what you see in other people spiritually and, and the influence you have in their life as you're walking through high school, that you're investing in them while you're here? Look down at verse 2. He says, I entreat, and I'm going to butcher these names, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche, I guess how you say that name, I'm not sure, to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. A big source of anxiety is relational conflict. There is relational conflict in Philippi. And there's these two women that I can't pronounce the names of. And this must have been public. Everyone must have known about the conflict happening in Philippi because Paul calls them out by name in the book of Philippians, the inspired word of God. And uh, this letter would have been read publicly. So the way this would work, Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians, And the Philippians get word that there's a letter coming from Paul. So the letter shows up with this guy, Epaphroditus. And they're going to call everyone together and say, we're going to read this letter together in front of the whole church. And so everyone gathers in their their seats. You can imagine one lady's on this side, one lady's on that side over there. And they're at odds for some reason. And they begin to read chapter 4. It wasn't called chapter 4. That didn't exist yet. But it was part of the letter. And they're reading it, and all of a sudden, their names are mentioned. And they're hearing it mentioned from Paul in front of everyone. And for everyone else, it's not a huge surprise because everyone knows they've been fighting. Everyone knows they always sit across the room from each other. They're, they've been at odds for, the sev- for several weeks, several months. And so Paul is calling them out publicly because of their conflict. And we don't know what the conflict's about, but it probably involved more than just these two women. We know when conflict happens, it usually happens with a couple of people, and then they talk to somebody, they talk to somebody, and then they talk to somebody, and, and word spreads. And now there's this, this big division in the church, and there's factions. And there's the people who are on her side, and the people who are on her side. And you know this has become this public thing, and everyone's involved. And look what Paul does in verse 2. Look what he says. He says, I entreat you to agree in the Lord. What's he appealing to? Paul's appealing to who they know. He's appealing to who they know, which is Christ. And even though He's saying, even though you're in conflict and you disagree about something, we don't know what it is, don't forget what you agree about. Don't forget that you you have this commonality in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if you can agree that Jesus Christ is Lord and you have agreement there, then this this is a starting point. This is huge. And so he's in he's appealing at first to to who they know. And then he goes on and he reminds them that they've worked alongside him for the gospel. For some of you, when you 
if you think about a conflict with someone that you've had in this ministry, maybe the conflict started at impact. Maybe the conflict started on a mission trip. Maybe it started doing something here on a Wednesday or Sunday. But conflict often happens in the church when you are laboring for the gospel together. And Paul mentions that. He says, both of you women, you're in conflict right now, but both of you have labored with me. You've labored with me for the gospel, and now here you are in division. And if you notice, when you're laboring for the gospel together, it's very often that Satan wants to come in and divide and bring about division in the midst of a gospel-centered work. And this must have happened to these two, these two women. Then lastly, he reminds them that there, he, says, uh, he says, whose books, whose names are in the book of life. What that means, he reminds them they're going to be spending eternity together. If you ever need motivation to work things out, know you'll be spending eternity together. Let's just, let's make heaven less awkward and just work it out. Work it out in the here and now. So I want you to track with this. Paul does three brilliant things in this short little opening passage. He reminds them who they know. He reminds them what they've done together. And he reminds them where they're going. He reminds them who they know, he reminds them what they've done together, and he reminds them where they're going. Look at me. If any of you are in conflict with other people in this room, maybe someone's not in the room right now because you're in conflict with them. I want to remind you who you know. That you can agree in Jesus. I want to remind you who you know. I want to remind you what you've done together, the ways in which you have labored for the gospel together. Like, think back on those moments. Think back on those times, knowing God was at the center of that. And the question is, why is he no longer at the center of your friendship? Look back on what you've done together, and then lastly, I want to remind you where you're going. Like, you're they're a brother. They're a sister in Christ. Like, you're going to be spending eternity together. Reminds you where you're going. One of the best things I've heard recently is this quote. When there is conflict, talk to one another, not about one another. You have conflict with someone, go to the person and seek to work it out and not just talk about. We often spend all of our energy telling 10 people what that person did and never going and facing the person and saying, hey, I'm really struggling here. Can you help me? So you talk to each other, not about one another. Paul also tells the church leaders, he says, to help these women when there is conflict, at times you need a third party to come in and, and, and bring reconciliation. This is why we have leaders and shepherds in this room and on Wednesdays. Every leader in this ministry knows 
that they're not just discussion leaders. Like, you, you think their job is to, like, get a piece of paper and lead a discussion. That's not what they're here for. That's part of it. But they're here to be shepherds with you. So if there's conflict, that's what they're here for. They're here to help walk you through that and bring about reconciliation with um, the people that are under our care. This is the true work of gospel-centered friendship. This is what it looks like. It does not mean we don't have conflict, but it's how we handle it that that truly matters. Look down at verse uh, 4. He says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. Now, this is like the meat of what we're going to be talking about with anxiety and worry. Verse 6, he says, do not be anxious about anything. Is that a suggestion? Or is that a command? It's a, it's a command. Now, this is the most difficult thing I'm going to say to you all morning. Are you ready? Anxiety and worry is a sin. Anxiety and worry is not the plan of God. I know for many of you, I just added to your anxiety. I just added to it. You're like, oh, that's what I was worried about. It's a sin. I knew it was wrong, but I didn't know it was that level. I think we, we see it as like this in-between thing, like, yeah, it's a struggle, and I, but we don't ever name it. I, I don't ever name it a sin. Like, I'll go pray about it, but it's like I'm not naming it a sin and saying, God, like, I'm, I'm not trusting you. Because at the heart of anxiety is a lack of trust. So if we're going to defeat it or let God defeat it in our lives, we have to call it what it is. We have to name it. We have to call it exactly what it is. And so we have to admit that it is, it is a sin. And the question is, uh, so how can we, I gave you a definition, but I want to give you like a picture now of what anxiety does to us. The word literally means to be pulled in different directions or to be pulled apart. This is what some of you are experiencing right now. You feel pulled apart. On the one hand, you have your hopes of the way things are supposed to be pulling you in one direction. Then you have the suffering and the reality of the way things are pulling you in the opposite direction. And on the inside, you feel pulled apart. When I was uh, out of town for two weeks, about a week and a half, we took our kids over to see a family over in the Middle East, and uh, just to encourage them. On the way back, we decided to stop in London for a few nights, and we spent Thanksgiving. It was fun. We spent Thanksgiving in London, and they don't celebrate Thanksgiving over there, apparently. It was just Thursday. It's like, come on, guys. Where's your holiday spirit? They don't have any of that over there, I guess. So we decided to go visit the Tower of London. Anybody, anybody been to the Tower of London in downtown London? A few of you have. And my wife has this funny obsession with, like, 
She likes to, she's like, I want to go find where they tortured people and show the kids. I'm like, all right, sounds fine by me. I want to give my kids nightmares. You better shape up or that's going to happen to you. So we go into the Tower of London where they used to torture people, and they have this, like, contraption called the rack. Anybody here know what the rack is? The rack is when they take your arms and your legs, and they separate, and they start to crank, and they start to literally just pull you apart physically. It gets your joints. You get out of joint, and it's... I'm not sure if the arms and legs come off, but it's pretty disgusting, all right? And just reading through what they do to people back then was just horrific. Gave me nightmares. I don't know about the kids, but gave me nightmares. But listen, I think it's a very vivid image because what, as grotesque as that sounds, that is what's happening to many of us on the inside. Like you're literally being, it feels like you're being pulled apart and you you feel it. Anxiety and worry has a physical manifestation. You feel it inside your body. It's not just some mystery. It's actually, you feel it. You're like, I feel it right here. And this is the result of, of anxiety. And there's actually another word. So the word worry comes from an old English. Speaking of the English, an old English word which means to strangle. I think this is another good image because worry has a way of squeezing the life out of us. It chokes out joy and peace. And I think one of the the causes of anxiety and worry is expectations. Because we don't expect suffering. We just don't. Like, we don't expect it. Even though we know it's there, and we see it in some people. We, we just have come to feel like, you know, I don't, I don't expect suffering. We're surprised when we experience it. So while we were in, uh, we flew into Dubai kind of late at night as a family. So we got a hotel. We had to get a hotel the first night there. And then the family we were meeting to hang out with them for about a week or so. They lived two hours away. So they actually came to meet us for one night in Dubai. So they got... We spent two nights in this hotel. They came for just the one night on the back end of that trip before we went back to their house to stay in a different city. And this was kind of a crazy deal because they have, like, I guess it was a total of six people they're trying to get a room for. We had a room reserved for them. And so it's got to be, like, a little bit of a bigger hotel room than normal, you know, for that many people to stay in one place, all their kids and their nanny and everything. And so we get to the hotel they come into the hotel, and the, and the guy was like, hey, so the room we we're going to put them in um, has a broken window, so we're trying to fix that. So we're going to put them in a different room, but it's actually an upgrade for the same price. And so now my family's like, I want to go see this room and, and see what it looks like. And uh, so he says, you know, it's going to be the same price. We're going to give them an upgrade. They're going to love this room. And so it's he didn't call it the penthouse suite, but he was like, it's a suite, and it's really nice. They're going to love this, and it's at a discount. And so we're, we're like, we're going to go see the room, right? So we go up to the 16th floor, and it's at the end of the hall. And you know, if you know hotels, the nice rooms are always at the end of the hall, right? And uh, so we open the door, 
And this room was pretty amazing, like amazing view. It was, had like several rooms, like living room. It had a master bedroom. It had like a walk-in closet in the master bedroom. And we're like, well, you guys got the hookup. Sweet, you know. And, but imagine for a minute if, if we opened the door, if we were told it was this amazing suite and we opened the door and it was just a regular hotel room, well, that'd be disappointment, right? Because the expectation was it was going to be something different. I think you and I struggle with expectation because we expect things to be a certain way. We expect suffering not to happen. And so when it does, we're surprised by it. I heard, I heard one preacher um, say it this way. He said, it's not just that we struggle with sadness and depression because of suffering. He says, we're sad that we're sad. We're depressed that we're depressed. We're anxious that we're anxious. Why? Because we don't expect suffering. And if you open up the Bible, you have to understand, like, we, we need to expect it, not live in fear of it, not be anxious about it, but we need to expect it. Because if you don't learn to expect it, you're just going to be sad that you're sad, depressed that you're depressed. You're going to stack sadness on top of sadness and depression on top of depression because you're going to ask yourself, why is this happening to me? This shouldn't be happening to me. And yet if you know the life of Jesus, you know that he was a man of sorrows. He was a man that somehow he walked on this earth as a man of sorrows and deeply burdened for things, and yet he was the son of God, and yet he was perfect. And so we have to understand we need to expect those kinds of things. In verse 6, here's the good news. We don't need to stay in that place of anxiety and fear and worry. In verse 6, if verse 6 just said, don't be anxious about anything, we'd be in trouble. It says so much more than that. Because what does God tell us to do? It says, but in everything, let your request be made known to God. This means no matter how big or small, you bring it to God. This means everything. Don't you and I do the filtering thing with God where we think, no, no, this doesn't, this is not that big of a deal. I'll just let it, I'll deal with it myself. No, it says bring everything to him. Anything causing you worry, anxiety. Anything you wrote on that card, anything you didn't write on the card that you forgot about, you bring it to him. Everything. You think he doesn't already know? He knows. He knows. So I want to give you three things that we see in this passage on how to deal with anxiety. The first is right praying. This might sound too easy or too obvious. Yeah, of course. You're a pastor, you're going to say, yeah, pray, pray about it. Prayer is always the answer. This is why we say the right kind of prayer. The right kind of prayer is really important. Do you know the kind of prayer really matters? It really does. So one of the first ways in which we pray, we bring him praise and adoration, recognizing who he is. Before jumping into making requests, we've got to remember who we're talking to. 
what really helps me is when I, at night, just go outside and look up and see what God has made and realize the bigness of God. One thing that really helped me, this is funny, but uh, in the Faith and Science um, equipped group on Wednesday night, the first one, Casey has these really good videos he's found online that just show the magnificence of the universe. And there was this one that showed, like, kind of peeled away from Earth and showed all these different images of how just huge the universe is. And in this one scene, you see the Earth as like a little tiny dot. And it says, every single person, billions and billions of people who have lived, lived on that little tiny dot. And you realize just how big and magnificent God's world is, then you realize how big and magnificent God must be. And when I meditate on those things, somehow I, I, look, I, look, at, I, I look back and I go, I, I think he's got this. I think he's got it. And so meditating there, praising him for who he is, adoring him for who he is, is a place to start. Then there's supplication. What is supplication? This is like where you get specific. You share your real needs and problems with God. And this is something we should all do. You get specific with God and tell him what you're going through. And I know whenever we struggle in these areas, most of us either we bottle it up, pretend to be strong, or if you do bring it to someone, you're bringing it to just your friends. We call it venting. And God wants us to bring it straight to him. Lastly, we pray with thanksgiving. And again, this might sound obvious, and I know we just had Thanksgiving, and everyone will ask, you know, what are you thankful for? And everyone posts what they're thankful for, and blah, 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. And we know we're supposed to be thankful. It's what we're supposed to do. But I don't think you realize how exercising thankfulness needs to be at the center of the war on anxiety. As we bring requests to him, what does it mean to to do this with thanksgiving? It's a very interesting idea. As you bring requests to him, that you thank him in advance for the outcome. As you're bringing those things to him and, and getting specific that you say to him, God, I thank you. What, what, however this turns out, I, I'm going to thank you in advance for the outcome. Even if it's not what my flesh currently wants, I'm going to thank you in advance for the outcome. And so we do it with thanksgiving. I think when we pray this way, our soul settles into this peace, knowing we, you know, that we can trust him. You want to hear one of the most convicting quotes I read this week? Here it is. I have yet to meet a chronic warrior who enjoys an excellent prayer life. I think I'll just let that one just sit on you for a bit. And me. You want to hear another one? This is not as, con- not as confrontational, but more encouraging. It goes like this. He says, When a believer prays, God may not change their circumstances, but he does change their heart. Many times, the thing... The change we seek 
is only in our circumstances, but the change we need is in our hearts. Most of the time, the, the thing that needs the most change is actually us. And so um, this is all right praying, okay? Then look at verse 7. What does all this lead to? Verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you pray, God's peace begins to stand over you and guard you. Guard your heart and your mind. At the center of anxiety is a couple of things. Wrong thinking and wrong feeling. It's the mind and it's the heart. Wrong thinking, wrong feeling. And so God's peace stands as a guard over both of those elements of who you are as a person. And this is a military term. So the way it sounds is really the way it should be. It's God's peace stands guard over you. And this is like a military analogy here. Remember, Paul is being guarded 24-7 by a Roman guard. And so as Paul is sitting there thinking, as he's writing Philippians, he's thinking, uh, how, how can I think of an analogy that um, would depict like what God's peace brings to us? Hey, maybe it's like this guy who's sitting right next to me guarding me 24-7. In that sense, God's peace stands guard over you, your heart and your mind. And you don't just get God's peace. It acts as a guard, preventing future attacks. So dealing with anxiety, right praying leads to right thinking. This will take us into the next part of the passage here. I want to be really clear. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, then you can't just manage your thinking, and that's it. If you don't yet know Christ, you will never get the peace of God until you have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ, and his death for you on the cross. If you don't know Christ, there's lots of books out there written about like how to manage your thoughts and how to you know, bring yourself into a place of peace and understanding. Well, listen, if you don't have God's real peace brought to you through the, the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, you're not going to ever really know peace if you don't really know Christ. Look down at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So here Paul fleshes it out a little bit more. What does right thinking look like? And he fleshes it out for us. I can't jump into all these different phrases, but he says, how much of our worry results from thinking what is false and dwelling on what's not true? So he says, whatever's true. And I can't cover all this whole list, but you get the idea. Right praying leads to right thinking. And then look at verse 9, last verse. What have you learned and received and heard and seen in me? Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So you see right here, right praying leads to right thinking, which leads to right living. And Paul says, points to himself as the example. And that might seem arrogant at first. It might seem like, wait, why, Paul? Why are you putting yourself as an example, Paul? But he does this elsewhere. I think he 
he recognizes that every single Christian needs someone in their life that can be an older, more mature example of how they're supposed to live with Christ. And if you're going to really live this stuff out, you can't just take these principles and just apply them on your own. You've got to have people in your life invested in your life, relationally invested in you to live these things out and to actually lead to a lifestyle change in your life. I told you a few weeks ago that the main thing I look for as I think about who's on this leadership team with our high school students here, I ask this question, is this person living a life worthy of invitation? And if they are at age 21, 25, 35, whatever their age is, then that's a great person to put in front of you. But here's the thing. If we're going to put leaders in front of you that are worthy of imitation, then you have to look to them and imitate them and be around them enough to get to know them and let them see where they can show you how to live as a follower of Christ, especially in areas like this. And so we have right praying, right thinking, and right living. I want to leave you with one last quote. He says, you'll become in practice what fills your mind in thought. And so if you're a not yet a follower of Christ, I want to invite you this morning to put your faith and trust in him for salvation because you will never get the peace of God um, if you don't have peace with God through his son, Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, but you're enslaved to anxiety, my prayer is that you, this would just be a launching pad this morning. We can't cover anxiety in 40 minutes, but a launching pad for you to live a life of freedom from the kind of fear and anxiety that's being talked about in this passage. So go ahead and finish with your discussion at your tables.